Well, this morning, uh, kind of giving you a little flavor of what my um, uh, passion is, and hopefully you'll get a sense of that passion as I have been called here to uh, work with you on discipleship and counseling. It goes back to Paul's passion. If you turn with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Because Paul, um, Paul was a driven guy, you know. <laughs> uh, if you've ever had a chance to read 2 Corinthians, you will find that Paul starts the message by talking about the fact that God is the God of all comfort. And why did Paul need comfort? Because he would go on in this book to talk about the shipwrecks and the beatings and the stonings and the imprisonments. And all the things that he had to go through, I mean, I, I, I haven't gone through a fraction of that. But Paul went through all of that, and he was still driven, driven to, to show Christ and to display Christ and to love others. And it became his, this section, I believe, is his foundation of ministry, and it becomes my foundation of ministry as well. Would you read with me here, uh, it's 10 verses, um, first, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to your conscience. We are not, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one, Christ, has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, as beautiful as our musical uh, time was this morning, and as wonderful as times of prayer and teaching and preaching, um, to be honest, it's going to be better in heaven, right? Actually, after the music this morning, I'm not sure how, but <laughs> I love some of those songs, my goodness. But the reality is, is that it's always going to be better in heaven, right? Our fellowship is going to be better in heaven. Our knowledge is going to be better in heaven. Our relationships are going to be better in heaven. Everything is going to be better in heaven than it is today. So the question I have for you, and the question I need to ask myself is, then why are we here? 
you know, if, if Christ has died for us and we have been redeemed and reconciled, why doesn't the world just end now and we go to heaven today? Amen, huh? <laughs> and it kind of reminds me, if you remember, Paul was in prison. and He almost had the same question. Remember in Philippians, he said, uh, for me to live as Christ, uh, but to die is gain. And he realized as much as he wanted to go to heaven today, at that moment, God had a ministry for him. God had a vehicle. He was going to use Paul as a vehicle to speak his good news and his gospel message out to the world. Paul was a minister of mercy. He was given a ministry of mercy, and, and you and, and you and I have that same ministry, that, that Paul is here and we're here in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain for a reason. It's not that things aren't going to be better in heaven. They will. We're here to preach the gospel. We're here to teach the gospel. We're here to live the gospel. We're here to have our homes and our marriages and this church display Christ so that this world out here that is lost, this world that is out here that is confused and in the midst of chaos can see something different about you, see something different about me, and that be drawn to Christ. And that was Paul's ministry, Paul's passion. So this morning, I'd like you just to consider four things. I'd like you to consider the motivation of Paul. What motivated Paul? The second thing I want you to consider is what was his method? What was Paul's method of grabbing people? The third thing I want you to consider is what was his message? What was the message that he taught? What was the message that he preached? What was the message that he lived? His motive, his method, his message. And then finally, I want you to consider what was his ministry? Well, let's jump right into it because we've got a lot to cover. Look with me here in um, verse 11, and then we're going to jump down to verse 14 and 15. But we'll start with verse 11. And, and Doug, you'll, you'll tell me that this is terrible, James, because you're starting the section at verse 11 where it starts, therefore, right? <laughs> and remember, if you remember Doug from last time, he said, therefore, you know, it always gets you back to the context. So I'm going to give you the context in a moment. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... What motivated Paul were two things. One, the fear of the Lord, and the second was the love of Christ. Well, let's start with the fear of the Lord. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Well, let's get the context. Go back with me to understand what Paul was just talking about before. Uh, because as you're probably familiar, there, there are no chapter divisions in the writings. When Paul wrote a letter, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verses. Um, all of that was put in afterwards. Paul wrote one long letter to the Corinthians. And so in this one long letter, he's following up. So when he goes, therefore, it's just connecting to the prior section. And what was the prior section? In verse 10, it says this. Well, actually, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the reality is, as I look at this congregation right now, every one of us will one day stand before God and have to give an account. There are two different types of judgment that the Bible talks about. The first type of judgment that is talked about in Scripture is this, this punitive type judgment. And you remember where, where often in Scripture Jesus had talked about separating the sheep from the goats. The, the wheat from the chaff, that, that there is a time 
in the future where all humanity will stand before God and God will separate out those who are his own, those who have trusted in Christ alone, and those who have not. And the, and the dreaded reality is this, that those who have never trusted in Christ as the Lord and Savior will spend eternity in a place called hell. And I don't know if that captivates us sometimes. I don't know if it captivates me at times that as I walk through New York City and past thousands upon thousands, maybe millions of people day after day, many of them are on a broad path to destruction, on a broad path to an eternity in hell. That should grip us, let alone to recognize that we're here to be ministers of mercy and be out there to be able to share the good news that has been given to you as a gift. But that's not the judgment that Paul's talking about here. There's a second type of judgment. That's a judgment where I'm assuming, I'm hoping that the vast majority of us in this room are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be judged for what we have done in Christ. That God, through his Holy Spirit, has given us spiritual gifts. And what have you done with me? What have you done with the good news? How have you lived this life? And that's a judgment that is not a punitive judgment. It's not a heaven or hell judgment, but it is a judgment that we will stand before God and be given an account, evaluated our whole lives. The Bible says that we will be evaluated for every thought, every word, every attitude, every action. So every careless word that we say and every careless thought that we have, we are going to stand before God and have to give an account for. That was what motivated Paul in verse, 13, in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear that he had was not this, uh, this terror or this dread of going to hell. That was not the type of fear that he had. But what he had was a reverential fear, an awe, a level of worship that as I stand before you, God, as I stand before Christ, I'm going to have to give an account for everything that I've lived and how I've lived my life. That should cause us and that should motive us, made it motivate us to live in a different way. What moves you? What motivates your life? You know, as a counselor, they teach us to ask a series of questions to peel back and to get underneath into the heart of a person to understand what it is that motivates them. You know, if you give me about 10 or 15 minutes, I probably, with a good series of questions, you could start to ask people and get a good idea of what is really going on in their heart. What motivates them? Um, what do I love? What do I cherish? What do I treasure? What is most important to me? I guess I would ask you, what is it that is, is most important to you? What drives you? For Paul, he recognized that, you know what, as much as I love coffee ice cream, and as much as I love the New York football giants, and as much as I love um, Amy Elizabeth and Abigail and Hannah and Isaiah, what should motivate me and what should motivate you is Christ. And that's what motivated Paul. And Paul made his whole life about Christ. He says, the fear of the Lord. I don't want to stand before you, God, and have to give an account for carelessness. But there's a second thing that motivated Paul. Look with me in verse 14. In verse 14, it was not merely the fear of the Lord that motivated him, but verse 14, for the love of Christ motivated him. Now, when you hear the love of Christ, it could be one of two things. It could be 
Paul's love for Christ. And following the way he was talking, it almost seems like it would make sense, right? Because he was talking about his own personal fear of God, and now he could be talking about his own personal love for Christ. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about his own personal love for Christ, though that should motivate us as believers to be driven to Christ. But what motivated him was Christ's love for him. What's that song? What the world needs now is what? Loves love. Man, they know that one, huh? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, Dionne Warwick, I think, sang that. Some of us are dating ourselves with that song, I tell you. Um, some of you are looking and say, I have no idea what that song is. Um, but what the world needs now is love, right? Sweet love. And I probably should have checked out the rest of those lyrics because I don't even remember what the rest of the lyrics are of that song. But the reality is this. The world does need love, right? But probably not the type of love that was in that song. What they need is to understand that there's a love for a Savior who loved you in such a way that he wouldn't just give money for you. Peter says you were not redeemed with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What amazes me, if you can get captivated with this, is that the offended father, the one that I offend every single day in my thoughts, words, attitudes, and actions in my sin, God chose me and chose you and said that I'm going to send my son for you. And then Jesus didn't just come here to live a life. He came here as a babbling baby. He came here to put himself under the law that he created. He came here to be, to be punished and to be mis mistreated. He came here to suffer for you and to, for me. He put himself in our place. And if you can get captivated with that type of love, you know, we watch Mel Gibson's movie and see the passion of the Christ and see the terrible crucifixion scene. And, and what, what he did in that movie was um, he may have shown the physical torment that people went through, um, that Christ went through, but he could not captivate what Christ went through for you and for me because God was going to pour all of his wrath, all of his anger for all of our sin that we would have spent eternity in hell he poured that out on Christ for you. And Christ bore that for you. He stood in your stead. There's greater love that hath no man that he's lays down his life for his friend. Now, when we get captivated by that type of love, and that motivates us, that motivates us in a different way. That love merits unconditional and complete devotion. That merit, that love demands our whole lives. I want you to consider the fact that Jesus Christ not only died physically, but he died to his own desires, he died to his own self, and then even after he rose again from the dead, what happened? He came out serving. He was serving his, bro his brothers, he was serving his apostles. And that's the motivation that should be motivating you and should be motivating me. A fear of the fact that we will stand before God and have to give an account for everything that we do, everything. Young people here in this room, everything that you do, you will stand and give an account. Older people, you will give an account for everything that we've done. But then there's a love of Christ. He loves you in such an amazing way, more than you could ever be loved. Most of us in this room are looking to be loved by someone. There is someone that loves you better than you could ever love and ever be loved.
And that motivated Paul. So Paul first found himself motivated by a fear of God and a love of, love of Christ. But the second thing that we find from Paul at the end of verse 11 was his method. How did he go about being a minister of mercy? Verse 11, end of verse 11, it says this. Therefore, the, knowing the fear of the Lord, what does he do? We persuade others. We persuade others. What Paul did in his ministry, his life was to persuade men and women that the gospel is good, that there is a Christ. That was his whole mission. He knew that the worship would be better in heaven. He knew that the fellowship would be better in heaven, but he knew that he was here to be a spokesperson for Christ, to persuade others in Christ. Uh, this word persuasion is interesting because what it takes on is the idea of not, um, not manipulating people, not controlling people, but getting people to think, getting people to believe and to, and to help them. And that takes time. We were talking last week about discipleship, right? And discipleship is that one-on-one -on -one work that you do with people. And in that time, what you do is to speak to them about their, their values and their beliefs and how they live. And you, that is hard work because you're going there in the trenches with people. And that is what one-on-one -on -one discipleship is. And that's what God calls you to be involved in, to be, be discipled, but to also disciple others. What's, what's the Great Commission? Remember, at the end, Christ says, all authority is given, given to you. And what happens? We're called to go out and baptize, baptize and disciple people and see the good news of the gospel going out to this world. Baptizing takes on the idea of evangelizing people, but that discipling one-on-one, -on -one, and that's what Paul found himself doing. So in this methodology that he used, he looked at persuading people with the good news of the gospel. But what was interesting about Paul in verse 11, he says, but what we are is um, we persuade others, but what we are is also known to God, and I hope it is known to your conscience as well. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. See, Paul wasn't only persuading people, but he also didn't want to focus people on himself. There are many churches today, there are many leaders today that want the attention on themselves. And people will go and flock to those churches because of that leader. And God has gifted people with abilities and gifts to be able to share good news. But the reality is this. You can't be drawn to Pastor Tim. You can't be drawn to Pastor Doug. And desperately, don't be drawn to Pastor James. Um, we need to be drawn to Christ. And what Paul was trying to do was to persuade people, to get them to think, but then to also not bring them to himself. And when you are so focused on a human being and you're missing Christ, you're missing the whole thing. You're missing the whole thing. Paul said that people spend time focusing on outward appearance and not what is in the heart. It's not about his own glory that he's focusing on. Do you ever find yourself at times being put under attack by other people for your beliefs? Uh-oh. If you're not, maybe we need to rethink.
But if you are, and I would assume that most of us are, you have your beliefs attacked day after day. What does Paul say here in verse um, 11 and 12 and then condemning um, uh, verse 13, he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. No, don't boast about me, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, but not what is in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we're in our right mind, it is for you. Has anybody ever called you crazy for believing in Christ? You're nuts, right? Um, you actually believe that a God created this world and you don't believe that there's evolution? Come on now. Don't you remember the science? You actually believe that God would send his son. What kind of child abuse would that be? You know, he sends his son and then he punishes his son so that you can go to heaven. How do you answer those questions? How do you answer those questions that people will challenge you with? How do you know the truth and how do you defend the truth? I hope we are going to teach those in those classes moving forward. But what Paul recognized was this. He has found himself under attack. And people were thinking he was crazy. He was out of his mind. He was nuts. He was lunatic. And Paul, he was driven. He was driven in such a way that he would even be willing to lose his life for Christ. And for some of us, that sounds crazy. Um, some people thought he was a madman. Some thought he was emotional. But the reality is, is that most of them saw him and they misinterpreted who he was. And Paul says, you know what? If I'm crazy, I'm crazy for Christ. And if I'm crazy, I'm crazy for you. Because I love you and I love Christ. And that became the method of his ministry. Well, his motive of his ministry was what? Fear and love. The method was to persuade others, not to draw them to himself, but to draw them back to Christ. But then what was his message? What was his message? Look with me in verse 14. For the love of Christ, what? Controls me. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So what was the message that Paul had? The message was Christ. There are many sermons that are going to be preached today that are never going to even mention the name of Christ. And I don't know if I would even call them sermons. Or they will mention the Lord Jesus Christ as a good man, as a good teacher, as a good counselor, as a good friend. And he is all of those things. But Christ and his cross must be central in our lives. And Paul, that became central in his life. He looked at Christ and he saw Christ as one who died for all. He died for all. But then the second element was this. All of us died who are in him. Now, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. You know, as you, as you were sitting there, as I was sitting there reading it and you're considering it, it says, for one has died for all. Therefore, you would expect it saying no one else died, right? The, the firefighter went into the building and died but saved all these people. That's what you would expect. You would not expect that one has died for all and therefore all have died. But what Paul is getting at is this. The death that Christ died for you was a sacrificial death. And then when he died, 
you were united with him in his death. You were connected with him. It was almost as though you were there at the cross. You remember in Galatians where he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That when Christ died on the cross and he brought you to faith, my life ended. It's not about me any longer. It is all about who? Christ. And that became the message of his life, that his message was Christ, his death, and his resurrection, and that I have died. That if God could sacrifice himself, and sacrifice not just his life, but his self-interest, why can I not sacrifice my own life and my own self-interest for Christ? And so that those in the world can know Christ and see Christ and be drawn to Christ in and through your life. And that became a motive, a mission, and his message. Is that your message today? Most of us are driven by where am I going to work, or where am I going to college, or who am I going to marry, or how much money I'm going to make, all of those things that are, once again, important, but they're not essential. What is most important is, is Christ first and foremost in your life. So Paul says that, you know, I'll even put up with people picking on me, I will put up with people calling me crazy, because it is all about speaking about Christ. So there it is. Paul had two motives, fear of standing before God and love for Christ. The love of Christ that drew him and compelled him into ministry. There it is, his ministry. He went and he had a methodology of going and persuading others, teaching, talking, one-on-one, -on -one, time after time, long-term. That was his message. His message is what? Christ and his cross and his resurrection. But what was his ministry? What was his ministry? His ministry was to see people persuaded in Christ. It says in verse 18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What was the repeated word in there? Reconciled or reconciliation. In fact, five times in those verses, he uses the word reconciled or reconciliation reconciliation. We are here because out in the world today, people are not reconciled to God. Of all the religions, how many religions do you think are in this world? Thousands, hundreds, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions. The reality is that there are really only two religions in this world. The religion of human works and abilities, what I do, and the religion of the grace of a God who did everything for you. And this world, and the reason why you see people day after day trying to figure out ways to appease that deity is because they don't know that they already are free in Christ if they trust in him. They're trying to earn their salvation. They're trying to merit their salvation. Some people are going to sit in church today because they believe they can check off the list and that God's going to be happy with them. And the reality is this. 
nothing that we do is ever going to transform that gap that we have. That Christ was the only one that could do it. And what God has done for you is not only redeemed you and reconciled you and brought you into relationship with him, but now he's given you the opportunity to be able to preach that message and to teach that message and to share that message with others. Because remember, the worship will be better in heaven. The fellowship will be better in heaven. You are here to be a beacon of light for Christ. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes out to a foreign land and represents his country or her country. They actually become in a spokesperson for that country. They become a representative. And what God has said is this, that Christ right now is helping you and empowering you to be his representative. He is making his appeal to the world through you. That is awesome to think about. That I become God's spokesperson? I become God's mirror to this world? I become God's beacon to this world? And so now the question I have to ask myself and the question I need to ask you is this. As people look at you, do they see Christ? As people hear you, do they hear Christ? As people follow you, would they be following in the steps of Christ? And that's what Paul's mission is. His ministry is that I want to see people reconciled to Christ, but he needed to live that life that was going to honor him and show him. Verse 21 is probably one of my most favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who has he made him? Who's the he here? God. For our sake, he made, who's the him here? Man, they're good theologians here. I like it. Good. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be what sin. I was reading this Max Licato book, right? And he was talking about what Christ has done for you. And he said that if you lived 72 years on this earth, and if you committed just one sin an hour for those 72 years, and I could sin a ton more than that, that means that you will commit about 635,000 sins in your life. That's just one sin an hour for 72 years. And some of us have well passed 72, right, years? Um, and some of us well surpass one sin an hour. And if you consider the fact that 630,000 sins at just one sin an hour for 72 years of my life, Christ born a cross for you. That what God did was he placed all of that on Christ. This great exchange occurred at the cross and in Christ's life that Christ lived perfectly from the womb all the way to the grave for you. And then what he did on the cross was God counted Christ as though he lived your life. And in your salvation, he counts you 
as though you live Christ. That's amazing to me. It is a miracle. Because I will commit millions of sins in my life. Millions upon millions upon millions of sins. And I will stand before God and have to give an account for every single one of those. And so will you. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. He became your sin-bearing substitute for you, it says. For our sake. Christ knew no sin. I can't even imagine what it would have been like for Christ. The agony of Gethsemane was not primarily that he was going to die a painful death on the cross. Thousands upon thousands of people had died that painful death on the cross. That was not the agony of Gethsemane. The agony of Gethsemane was that the sinless Savior was going to bear wrath and be separated from his Father for you and for me. So that in him we might become righteousness of God. Salvation is beautiful because you know what? God counts you as righteous even though I'm still unrighteous. I still sin every single day. Tons of times every single day. But what God does for us is this beautiful concept of justification. He counts you as righteous even when you're not righteous. And then he does a secondary thing, which hopefully we're going to see in the discipleship. We grow in sanctification. We become more holy. We grow in Christ. And then we represent him to a world that desperately needs to hear that message of hope. That is a message of hope that this world needs. That is a message of peace, of joy, of satisfaction. And you're here for one reason, and one reason alone, to display Christ. So you want to know what draws, drives me? But more than that, what dri drove Paul, and what God wants to see driving, driving your life, Motive, fear of God, and love of God. Your method, persuade others, sit down with them, get into the trenches day after day, working with them, encouraging them, drawing them, teaching them, training them, doing the hard work. It doesn't happen overnight. What's your message? Your message is not to draw people to yourself. Your message is to draw them back to Christ. And yes, you're guilty. And yes, you fail. But you know what? God loves you. And he accepts you and forgives you in Christ. And that becomes the message. And then what's your ministry? Your ministry is a ministry of mercy. Mercy is this wonderful concept. Grace is the concept of dealing with the legal issues that we have in our lives. We fail. Mercy deals with the ruin and the misery that people have. Just down the road from us, there are thousands of people that are in misery today, and they don't have an answer. Before I close, I, wanna, I want you to consider something that I um, heard from a sermon from a pastor church just in Hackettstown. And he was giving uh, these stats. I'm not a big stats guy. But this overwhelmed me. America is one of the largest unevangelized countries in the world. 56% of people do not have a church in their own culture in our area. Foreign missions is a necessary need but the reality is that if you look at the stats at the beginning of the 20th century, 90% of the world's Christians were in Europe and America. 
By the end of the 20th century, 75% were in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Pacific. We began the century when 90% of Christian people, professing Christians, were here in the United States and in Europe, and by the end, we're not even on the list. The second largest missionary sending organizations or nations in this world is what? India. Not the United States any longer. The United States has 195 million non-churched Americans. It's the fourth largest non-church country in the world. There are more, I couldn't get this, unfathomable to me, that there are more professing Christians in Russia today than there are in the United States of America. John Piper said it this way, despite the rise of megachurches, there's no country or county in America that has a greater church attendance than it did 10 years ago. With all the megachurches that we have, you can't even find one county in America that has more church-attending people than they did 10 years ago. Each year, 4,000 churches close their doors for good, and only 1,500 new churches open. Among black Americans, 26 million black Americans, only 30% are evangelized. Among the 27 million um, Latin Americans, they're virtually untouched with the gospel in the United States, even though it's exploding in Latin America. 50 million people in the United States call themselves Christians. I don't know if that's the case. But the reality is, is that if you just took the 50 million people in the United States that call themselves Christians, and let's say we double that, we take it to 100 million people, there are more non-Christians in the United States than in all the populations of every 200 countries in this world, except for eight nations. We are one of the largest unchurched places in the world. I just took four cities from this area. There are 27,000 people just right in four cities right around this area. And how many of them know of Christ? So I ask you this morning, what is your motive? I ask you this morning, what is your message? I ask you this morning, what is your ministry? Your ministry is Christ to the world. Lord, I pray.